Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're going to be talking about the evolving dynamics of online grocery shopping for wine. Today, our guest is Jessica Kogan, Chief Growth and Experience Officer for Vintage Wine Estates. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me and really appreciate you guys wanting to tackle the discussion of grocery. Awesome. And Jessica, I was hoping you could give me and Peter a brief overview of your background and experience in wine. Different than both of you, I come from a part of the industry that is kind of on the outside of wine. I grew up on the East Coast, not really very big into wine. I went to NYU, was really into consumer products, was in fashion and beauty for many years, ended up moving out here. While in fashion and beauty, I discovered the internet, built a couple of really amazing websites that both failed and thrived, and ended up Coming out here, met Cameron Hughes, who I started a digitally native wine business with called Cameron Hughes Wine, which was kind of a culmination of all of my experience, both as a marketer, a web enthusiast, soon to be e-commerce specialist. And the company was acquired in 2017 by Vintage Wine Estates and have been with Vintage Wine Estates since in the role of chief marketing officer and chief digital officer to help them really focus on growing their direct-to-consumer business and soon pivoted into a role that is kind of bringing kind of both the worlds of direct-to-consumer and e-commerce together in a very meaningful way, which is called e-grocery. And so have taken on the unique title of Chief Growth and Experience Officer and focused on growth pathways for the business and experience being the number one priority of everything is customer experience. Yeah, the unique title, because when we ever put out bloopers, we'll have Robert's uh, four attempts to say the title. It's a rough title. Like, it's just, I remember when my title was chief digital officer and people were like, are you IT? Like, do you do IT? And it's so interesting to see that chief digital officer is really kind of the new chief marketing officer for many companies. It's like the new CMO. And I believe the same thing will be with this very clunky title of growth and experience, mostly more focused on experience, which is really bringing like process and customer together in one. So for those who aren't that familiar with it, what exactly is Vintage Wine Estates? So Vintage Wine Estates is a large, I would say, wine holding company. And we tend to call it a family of wineries. There are 12 winery estates that Vintage owns in addition to a couple of digitally native businesses, in addition to some very large production and 12 to 15 lifestyle brands that are sold nationally. So I believe it's the 11th largest wine holding company in the U.S. And it's a really wonderful company that started about 20 years ago by the founder, Pat Roney, and has evolved so much in the last five to 10 years with a very heavy focus on direct-to-consumer, which has been quite unique for larger wine-holding companies where DTC isn't truly an outward focus. So yeah, it's been absolutely super fun. And for others who want more info on Vintage Wine Estates, it is a public company right now under the ticker VWE, I think. Is that right? Correct, yeah. And so a lot of information is publicly available if 
anyone's interested. It definitely is. We've taken a few hits over the last couple of months, but what doesn't break you makes you stronger, as we like to say. But it's been an interesting ride and we're all just learning to be public. And as we all know, in the wine industry, it hasn't always been our forte. And also Mother Nature isn't always super cooperative in the efforts to be a publicly wine trade company. We're definitely enjoying the journey for sure. Yeah, Mother Nature is not always the uh, up and to the right growth pattern. Yes. <laughs> if only we could have conversations with her about what it is that we need, like not one more atmospheric river. Come on, snow in Napa. It was a thing. Oh my God. Last week, it was like 100 mile per hour winds. Insane. It's just bizarre. Lots of things are bizarre. Speaking of which, I'm sure uh, the pandemic had a major impact on our major area that we were going to talk about in terms of grocery space. And we're really interesting on the like changes and trends in this space, particularly as we look at the digital and e-commerce side of grocery. To what degree has grocery purchasing changed or moved online? I mean, so I don't have the Rabobank studies in front of me and Statista and and Peter, you know this, you use resources all the time and surveys and whatnot. But the last report I read is that the expectation is that 22% of Americans by 2025 will be purchasing their groceries online. What does that mean? Like everyone's like, they're not going to a website to buy their groceries. It means anything that is transacted digitally. So outside of a physical retail store. So that can mean purchasing your groceries or wine on an app. It could mean buying on a website. It can mean purchasing on a grocery website or a grocery app. It's anything that digitally enables your order, your grocery order. And I'm sure that the three of us here can think about the many different ways that we have purchased groceries in many different avenues, like whether it's on Target.com or on the Target app, or it's on Drizzly or it's on Uber Eats, all of those qualify as grocery transactions. And so in terms of the growth, particularly for wine, is that 22% specifically related to wine or just grocery in general? So that's grocery in general. And for adult beverage, it's the fastest growing segment in grocery. So for purchase online. And you're like, well, why is that? Like, why? That seems so strange. It's usually like yogurt and, you know, like eggs or something like that. It is because, and what we're finding, customers in certain states feel very overwhelmed when they go to the physical shelf. They see a thousand different labels in front of them and they're like, what am I to buy? What is it that I want? And sometimes you go to the grocery store and you know exactly what you want. You know, it's quick, quick, quick. But what we're learning is that customers really enjoy the story. They really enjoy learning about the background and the history of wine. And so the result is we're seeing record growth in purchasing wine on these grocery websites and grocery apps. It really is changing the game in so many ways and introducing new brands that perhaps would never have had a voice because they tell their story very well digitally. But that's basically what we're seeing happen. We're also seeing that, of course, in spirits and in beer, but wine is definitely leading the way. Taking a step back and looking kind of overall at grocery, since the pandemic has largely 
being something that we're working through actively and opening back up. Have we seen the demand for purchasing online waned, or is that something that's remained static, even though that we're kind of back to reopening? Sure. So I'm going to answer that in two parts for you. The first is we have seen fully expected slower growth in what we call direct-to-consumer. So traditional e-commerce, as we have learned it, right? So going to a brand website and purchasing product on a brand website. What we have not seen slow down at all is purchasing on apps, purchasing on grocery websites. Because what we're seeing, and this is a, a very McKinsey term, is major digital transformation in grocery, like just major, huge, massive investments in their technological processes from AI to supply chain to consumer-friendly apps. And so the result is grocery stores see the potential of the revenue that they can generate online outside of the physical store. The physical store is a critical component that is not going away. It's going nowhere. But what digital does is it actually brings up your basket size. Typically, they have found statistically, it allows the customer flexibility, like a little more flexibility. So let's say you're just like super busy. You don't have time to get to the store, but you want to get to the store. You just want to stop by. Now you can purchase your list online and then go pick it up curbside or go pick it up inside the store And it allows you to run into the store and do like your hard target search, get what you need and get out while getting your main groceries already taken care of. It's just groceries creating a lot of flexibility for customers to purchase how it works for them. Yeah, I think what's interesting with the way we use the grocery anecdotally is just that like there's certain like staples we just always buy. And the fact that those are queued up, like if it's just me, I can go to the store and forget one of those and come home to an angry wife, which we want to avoid, which is a, you know, a user experience of these apps. And so having the list is like, Hey, you've bought these 10 things before. Do you want these? And they just throw at the top of the list. It makes it super easy for the staples. Obviously I want to go choose my meat and some of my vegetables by myself. Yeah. You know, I think that let's be honest, like it is for people. I mean, I have two daughters. I am a full-time working mom. Life is busy. Like Instacart changed my life as it got better from COVID. Prior to COVID, like I would say like five times out of 10, like poor shopping experience, like because they didn't come back with what I wanted. But with COVID came a better, better trained, I would say contractors or depending on what state they're in, what class they're working in, if they're full time, et cetera. But they're learning. They're learning from their mistakes in terms of selection. So I would say that they're refining their process much better. Will I get my meat from an Instacart shopper? Like, probably not. But I've like definitely experimented with vegetables and it's getting better. But the staples and I mean, when it comes to adult beverage, it's pretty straightforward. A label is a label. The name is the name. And if it's on your shopping list, it's typically not that hard to find unless it's sold out, which happens a lot because it's the adult beverage industry. And how much is the split between pickup and delivery? And is there a clear distinction between those two groups for grocery? So yes, there is. And honestly, a person who works in grocery on the digital side would be better to speak to it in terms of the actual breakouts. But I would say that it is pretty 
well-weighted right now, which is from what I have read and what I have seen, it's about 50-50 at the moment. There's a huge desire to go, I wouldn't say 50-50, it depends on the grocery store. Let's just use Target as an example because I know them super well and they offer more modes than just curbside pickup and or delivery to your house. They offer a mode where you can pick up in store and then go do your own shopping. They also offer a mode where you can wait outside in their curbside parking and go in if you want. So they're very flexible in their app and you can literally be in the parking lot and say, I know I'm here to pick up curbside, but I want to go in. And so their apps are now accommodating for all of these sudden shifts and these changes, which is perfect because customers still love when they go to do curbside pickup, if they are not time starved and have to be somewhere immediately, generally they will choose to want to go into the store and go do something. Speaking of the apps, I'm curious on how important are the delivery apps, you know, example like the Instacarts versus the direct from the grocery store, maybe something like the Whole Foods or Fresh app. How important are the distinction between those two different categories of apps? Well, I don't think the customer distinguishes between the two, right? So I will say, and this is one person's perspective, the lack of investment by grocery is what birthed Instacart and Drizzly and Uber Eats. They took a moment in time where grocery was like, you know, it's just like, I just don't like get this technology thing. Like, it's just like not that important. And this like silly company called Instacart is coming to me and they're like asking me to share my catalog with them. And yeah, I don't like see that as a problem. Like, why not? I'll just let them scrape the information and like see how they do. Like, whatever. We have bigger fish to fry. So I would say that prior to COVID, grocery stores were like, this is not really that important. Instacart, like just let that company do whatever they're doing. Let Drizzly do whatever they're doing. And now they're like, not only do they want to be the app of choice, they are trying to be your everything of choice. They're not just going to be a grocery store anymore to you. They are going to be your lifestyle store. Well, that's probably particularly true of Amazon, which bought Whole Foods and is the everything store already for everything. It's so interesting with Amazon and with Whole Foods, because I think with Whole Foods, what Amazon was thinking is that we're just going to turn them into like warehouses. Like Whole Foods is going to be a warehouse where we can like drop ship everything. We can get products to our customers super fast, et cetera. But it's interesting. I think that their model, while it has led the way, I think a blend of what like a Kroger is doing or what a Meyer is doing or really Albertsons owning the universe, maybe eventually with Kroger, we'll see. What they're doing is different than Amazon because Amazon is like bookstore, clothing, everything, right? And Whole Foods, right? But really with Albertsons, H-E-B, it's grocery, then life. It's an inversion. And I believe that customers at the end of the day are in their grocery life are going to look to grocery for 
tips on wellness, tips on what to buy, like to feed their family, to clothe their family, take care of their family versus an Amazon or Whole Foods. We definitely saw that move the other way with people like Target and Walmart doing more grocery to try to get that everyday repeat business type of thing. And so we talked about how groceries moving digitally and online to take a step back for wine. How important is grocery for the wine category? It's like so important. I have a really good stat for you that I pulled out. So by 2025, 5.97 billion will be purchased in wine on grocery e-commerce sites. It seems like a small number, but I'm just going to throw another number at you. By 2025, the direct consumer business is going to be 7.97 billion. Remembering that wine in 2018 on grocery commerce sites was not even a billion (laughs) dollars. So to me, the growth is going to be very fast and very fierce online for wine. Because what we're seeing is that customers, again, going back to kind of what I was saying earlier, is that they really enjoy the narrative. They really enjoy the stories. Now, I'm going to take you to a moment. I don't know if you guys ever are going to the physical store. I love going to the physical store. When I go to the physical store and I see something I like, the first thing that I tend to do is go to my phone to learn about it if I don't know what the product is. I don't know about you guys, but like, that's what I do. Well, what we're seeing in the wine aisle is that customers are doing the same thing. And that journey, so like, even if the order doesn't happen online, like even if it's not transacted on the grocery website and they're in the physical store, there's an expectation by the customer that if that product is on the physical shelf, that the grocery store will have the information on their website or on their app. I haven't bought a lot of uh, wine at grocery stores in the last, I don't know, decade or so. Although I did recently go to a Safeway to try to buy all the uh, top selling wines in the country for study purposes for the MW exam. Of course, of course, (laughs) just to study. We know just to study. It's not wines I would buy normally. (laughs) It's just to spit out. But in terms of grocery in general for wine, like both in store and online, how important is that as a sales channel for the wine industry? It's really critical, especially for the wine industry, because I mean, I'm sure you've read all the numbers like We're seeing flat growth and we're seeing a generation. I think both of you are probably millennials. We're both Gen X. (laughs) You are? The tail end of Gen X. Okay. I'm like, you're not my cohort. Okay. (laughs) 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 Well, millennials have definitely not because they are not, there's like wrong with the generation. It's that they came to wine and the ability to acquire wine later than us and our parents because of 2008. And so the acquisition costs are much higher for them or have been. And so they also feel differently about their engagement with wine. Whereas Gen Z, they are born digitally, they live digitally, and they love stories. They really do. And they appreciate and love authenticity. And more than anything, 
Whereas millennials do talk wellness and they are into wellness and they are into living better and putting good things in your body. I would say Gen Z is really committed to it. And so to me, digital is absolutely critical for the wine industry, most especially to share the message of wellness. Both of you are like, that's just so not cork dorky to say that. But in contrast to what you're competing against, which are the ready-to-drink cocktails and the sugared malt beverages that have really taken off, which people are buying because it's 95 calories per can, like that's all fine and good, but the stuff you're putting in your body isn't that great. But they write healthy or something on it, right? Or all natural or, <laughs> you know. I mean, totally, they do. And you sit there as a person who's in the wine industry and you're just like, Wait, really? And so I think part of our job is really spreading that message of wine as a better choice for your body, as a better choice for your lifestyle. And it hasn't always been a better choice for your pocketbook. Like, as you all know, I mean, Peter, having worked at a pretty expensive company that makes some pretty amazing wines, but out of reach to a lot of customers, Part of our job is to make amazing wines accessible to a younger generation. And I've listened to you guys talk quite a bit. And I know that one of your recent podcasts was about the cost of wine, the different levels and the different tiers. And we are seeing in general in the industry prices go up. But I really think it is, in addition to being digital, I think it's truly important for us to make amazing wine, accessible and affordable. I was talking to an equity analyst covering the wine space, and we were talking about premiumization and all that and inflation. I'm not sure that it's actually the lower categories are doing so poorly as much as the pricing has gone up that it's moving categories. So a lot of volume that was 10 to $15 before. Now when I bought these wines at Safeway, I was surprised by the suggested retail price. They were in the $15 to $20 range for, you know, high-end brands. I remember a decade ago, LaMarco was like $7 or something like that. And now it's 17 So it's not that the wines change. It's in a totally completely category based on the old way we categorize pricing for a lot of mass market wines. Yeah. And I wouldn't say like LaMarco isn't bad. It's just, I guess, part of the reason we started Cameron Hughes Wine was that we truly believe that it is important to get really awesome wine that is affordable. That's not $17.99. Like we started the company because we had a bottle of Big House Red from Bonnie Dune and it was like $16 or $17 back in like 2001. And we're like, this is shit. Excuse my language. This is not good. And I can't believe that we just paid this much for this wine. And so I guess my belief is that we as an industry have to work really hard to get really, not just like mass market wine at $17, but like wine that is going to like move you. And we know it can be done. It can be done. On the back end, it can be done. It's just the front end. Sure. So we had Curtis Mann, who's a master of wine and the lead buyer at Albertsons on episode 84, tell us how he thinks about buying wines into grocery how do you think about selling wines in the grocery and competing for all the other brands on the shelf, first on the grocery physical shelf and then also on the digital shelf? And we'll talk about how that's different. Well, can I first ask, what did Curtis say? I'm just curious. Like, can you sum <laughs> it up? For me? 
He said, have a plan. <laughs> um, I have to look at my notes, but he was like, I think he had four or five different things that you had to have. And he was like, please have at least four of these. So that we're not, I think a lot of people go to him and just say, buy my wine, but they don't have a distributor or they don't have an educational pitch deck to educate his staff on what it is. And so there's a, or UPC codes or something. There's a lot of things that I think people think, oh, I can just sell wine anywhere and forget that when you're at the grocery store, there are different requirements. And the lead times and production levels that are required to get to a certain scale, he commented on as well. He's like, sometimes there's local selections, but in general, it has to be really local or it has to scale. And then understanding their lead times was important as well. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. You know, wine is, it's not an inexpensive business to be in, as we all know. I'm not working in the field in wholesale selling wine to buyers, though I would say as a person on the outside, I'm always saying, if we're going to sell into a national grocery chain, like we should always be going in with the idea that we are going to help pull the customer to the brand and the brand to the customer. And what does that mean? What does that look like? I strongly, strongly believe in demo events in the physical store and talking to customers and being there in the wine aisle. I would say Vintage does a really good job at doing that in offering promotional plans that always take into account some type of investment of spending time with customers in the physical store. Because I think national retailers should demand that, quite frankly. I just think it's like just a huge part of the opportunity. Obviously, the second part is making the story accessible and easy. QR codes, like nobody knew how to scan a QR code like five years ago. Like we all know this for a fact and we had to learn it during COVID. And now it's like we live for QR codes. And I think that there's so much opportunity to really bring the QR code to life on the label. I mean, I know we've talked about all these kinds of like labels where you have kind of like the 3D elements, you have all kinds of AI that you can put on the labels. But I think honestly, you can get away with a QR code and boom, you have a customer who isn't like trying to figure out how to bring the label to life on their camera, but the QR code takes you right to where you want to go. I also think in terms of scaling, realistically, it's very difficult to do with a national retailer. Like, I think that you have to already have like centers of distribution ready to go. And once you go to a national retailer and you commit to a, a significant program, like realistically, you have to be super ready. We have a brand at Vintage that is really catching fire. It's called Bardog. I wish I had a bottle here. The wine is outstanding. And why it's so wonderful, why people love it. It is a very simple idea. There is a beautiful illustration of a dog on the cover of the label, all kinds of different breeds. And people just love animals. They love animals. And I know it's like, it doesn't tell you terroir and it doesn't tell you like all of the finer points, but part of the challenge is getting customers just to like grab the bottle, right? Like just to grab the bottle and remember the bottle. So what I love about Bardog is that, yes, it's kind of sneaky because it's like appealing to like the emotional aspect of a customer not necessarily related to wine. But it is once it gets in the hands of a customer and they taste the wine, they're just like, 
This is so freaking good. I guess what it comes back to at the end of the day is offering amazing wine in the bottle. I always say this, like it always comes back to the product, doesn't it? Especially for repeat purchase. The only thing that I have found challenging is when customers like year after year expect for it to be exactly the same, right? And that is just impossible. So I'm curious as grocery buying and subsequently some wine buying moves online, what impact does that have for a winery? And that's an interesting one in terms of labeling and how it competes for shelf space versus like communicating vintage variation and like switching from an online to in-person. I'm sure there's some different things that you're going to consider. And then you're going through that change at the same time. So for grocery stores, like if you go to Target right now and you just type in Bardog, you'll see Bardog come up and you'll see that the content is extremely rich. And that's a result of grocery investing massively in their technical and digital infrastructure. How do we do it? How does a wine supplier get that type of information to a Target, to a Walmart, to a Safeway, to KL, to the local wine store around the corner, which is also selling online? There are quite a few publishers that became quite big during COVID. They were big prior to COVID in other CPG categories. It's just the adult beverage industry finally caught on, or should I say distributors allowed it in any case. So we work with product information manager called Salsify. Think of Salsify as just, it's a publisher and it publishes to grocery sites that accept the feed all over the country. It's the same idea as Instacart, but like Safeway publishing to Instacart. We publish to Safeway. So it's all being run by what's called a PEM, a product information manager. There are quite a few companies that do this. All the major suppliers work with them now, as do the distributors. And almost every major grocery store to specialized retailer accepts the feeds. Now, here's the thing, especially in adult beverage, different than any other category. The only way that your product will populate on the store, on the digital store, on the target.com or walmart.com is if your product is available in that store, in that zip code. So it's become so highly targeted and specialized and the automation is quite incredible. But what I think is the most exciting part of this kind of publishing system is that instead of passing your information to the distributor in an Excel spreadsheet and then uploading it with like 20 spelling mistakes and the wrong images, we have the supplier now has the control direct to the grocery store. We are the ones who can fix the spelling mistakes. We are the ones who can fix the content. Now you have very robust grocery stores like Target, like Walmart, like HEB, like Kroger, that are building out their product templates to accommodate what we call A-plus content, right? Like videos and lifestyle images and educational information about the product. And obviously, many of these stores now are doing the metadata, which is if you like this wine, you also like this wine. All of these aspects of the digital experience are what customers have been craving, like craving this information. So just a side note, I don't think it was for grocery, but was 750, which is now part of Provi, do similar 
things, maybe for the independent retail store, but I know they were trying to take or get more information from suppliers. We interviewed Aaron Sherman, the CEO, a while back. Is that similar, but just for the grocery channel? Well, they were doing it primarily for buyers, for retail buyers. So for the buyer at Target, buyer at Kroger, et cetera, it wasn't consumer facing. So what I'm talking is consumer facing, like you and I going to the website versus a retailer logging into 750 and seeing the full description of the product and all the information. It was just 750 kept it specific to the industry versus the buying public. While we were talking, I did go on a target.com and search bar dog and you know, we had two uh, dog bar treats that came up, but then your three wines, right? And so, and nothing else, right? There's nothing else that is there. It's just your three wines and those two things that happen to have those same words in there. But that's pretty impressive. Also must mean getting the name that's going to stick in someone's head for this kind of different versus a label that's going to, because they have to be able to look for it. It's hard to look for a picture necessarily. I mean, obviously there's technology where if you take a photo, you can find it. It's an interesting thing where I'm assuming naming conventions of brands that you're rolling out must really be stick in people's head. They're super important, but I will tell you most people search like 94 or 5% of searches are by varietal. Oh, really? Yeah. Not by brand. Most people don't, I shouldn't be saying this, but like most people don't remember the brand name of what they purchased. So Gallo, who revolutionized the concept of the single varietal in this country, I mean, customers do think this way. You also see like a big proportion of the searches, red wine or white wine, because they just don't even know the name of the varietal. But most of the searches are done as descriptors. That's an interesting thinking about that in terms of how they're searching and how they're buying. And then they're recognizing potentially what they probably bought inside that, I'm assuming. Typically, yes, but also no. This is the beauty of digital, which is depending on the algorithm and depending on the velocity of your brand and understanding the digital universe, you can actually figure out a way to get your brand to come up much higher than perhaps a big competitor because you just understand kind of the flywheel of the digital customer. So that's the great opportunity. You're using like lookalike audiences to target. You're basically using essentially like a sponsored ad to be able to have your wine pop up when people searches red wine and it's available in that store and things like that. So you can't buy ads on any of the grocery sites because of Tide House. But what you can do is influence the algorithm through the amount of touches that the product has. So for example, if you have a lot of reviews on the site, on your product, if you have a lot of customers saving your product in their grocery bag, there are multiple ways that you can build the algorithm and the velocity of your brand in the digital ecosystem. Looking at like a typical grocery purchase, like this in person versus a digital, do you see a higher or lower percentage that is going towards wine purchasing in a typical basket? Higher. Oh, yeah. I mean, Target just came out with a report where I think it was like last year was fascinating. And essentially, in calendar year 21, they sold four times the amount of alcohol online with wine being the largest proportion. Okay, interesting. Because a lot of times, of course, she talks about in terms of dollar size of the basket. So in-person basket, they just made 4X, but they didn't say like, I'm assuming the overall online baskets are larger in general. That's some of the stats I've seen as well. Yes, absolutely. As a percentage, yes, they're seeing, I only know the percentage of when they're adding alcohol to the cart and it's 135%. 
larger in terms of what they're seeing in the physical store, in terms of the amount of times purchasing adult beverage online. Essentially, what they're saying is that if a customer buys adult beverage as part of their grocery shopping digitally, the basket is 135% bigger than what we will typically see in the physical space. That's substantially larger than I would have guessed. Again, like going back to Peter's roots as a consultant at McKinsey, McKinsey has done some amazing evaluations and analysis on grocery and their investment in technology and kind of the transformative digital uses that they're putting into play because of this percentage of growth that they're seeing. And I'm curious, how does online buying impact how groceries are stocking their selections? Because I'm assuming most of the times the groceries are being picked at the local stores as opposed to a central location. I'm curious on how that impacts their selections in terms of what they're going to increase or decrease based on volumes that are moving. Oh my gosh, it's such a good question. That is a question I have asked myself, and it is very difficult to get visibility on how buyers are making their decisions, especially in adult beverage, simply because many large national grocery chains still separate out adult beverage from their e-commerce teams. So it is very difficult to understand from the buyer's perspective how they are buying based on digital, if that makes any sense. And I'll say that I haven't asked the question recently, so it is a question that I will pose to our wholesale team. Maybe a slightly different angle than to it. Is there parity between online and grocery? Or is there sometimes specific wines that are only available on-site or only available online? I think every retailer probably does it differently. I can only speak like, for example, with Total Wine. Total Wine, they will always have their own wine in the store and online. (laughs) Whereas with brands, sometimes it's only available online and sometimes it's available offline. And in some cases, it's available on both. And typically, I think it has to do with their acknowledgement of how quickly their own produce, their white label brands are growing digitally. It's kind of like the strategy that they employed offline, which is for many, many years, like they buy like Kendall Jackson and put it in like the far back of the store and they'll have their own wines at the front of the store. And then sometimes maybe Kendall Jackson will be there. Sometimes it won't. It's the same kind of idea with what I've seen them do digitally and good for them for understanding the power of digital. I think typically as I've seen in grocery they're not making it a case yet where it's an exclusive online or it's an exclusive offline. They're not distinguishing between the two yet. And is pricing and discounting the same in-store and online? Or sometimes are there different discounts for different channels or even different prices? I hope that doesn't happen, but I, I don't know. I would say that the coupons work the exact same as I've seen in national grocery. It's just the coupons are digital now. Got it. We think about the consumer. You mentioned how they have a voracious appetite for the stories, especially when online, and you can really educate them and give them a richer experience about the brand. Are there other things that change when people are shopping for wine at a grocery store online versus in the store? We talked about this right before we got started. I think it's the anxiety level. I certainly do. I think that the anxiety level changes when you have the ability to like spend quiet time browsing and learning. You know, for a lot of people, wine is a discretionary purchase 
And when they buy wine, they want to make a good decision for a multitude of factors. And I think the digital just gives them the airspace and the runway to feel less anxious about what it is that they're going to buy. It's like, yes, they would love for somebody to say, this is just great wine, just buy it, right? But when faced with a thousand SKUs in front of their face and a thousand SKUs organized beautifully on their phone, like two at a time, it's just much more digestible. I think that what we're seeing online is more of a willingness to try stuff and take risks versus offline, you're going to kind of the same brand you know. Now, that being said, during COVID, customers bought brands they knew. But then what we're now seeing are just like new breakouts. We're seeing brands that aren't necessarily top 20 Nielsen really making a dent with consumers. Well, with grocery, the traditional was the displays, where it's positioned on the shelf, the shelf talker. And you mentioned how you can use different ways to get in a different position and slot on the algorithms for the app. Are there other things you can do for online? One stat that uh, a friend told me, the wine next to the handle on the fridge for white wine, right there at eye height, sold like 14% more than everything else in the fridge. It was just, it was the most convenient thing. The thing that people see, it's that thing to grab, that convenience. Is that then just being the top of specific search or is it specific type of sale or discounting promotion? What are things that might work better online than in store? Well, let me ask you a question. When you are looking to buy something online, and you do a search, whatever, for a brand or for the product, like, how do you digest the information? What do you take into account when you are considering buying? Like, when you are just in your app or in a browser in a store, like, what matters to you? Well, for me, when I did online grocery shopping for like Whole Foods online, I would shop the sale part <laughs> to see which parts were. And then the things that, as Robert said, are like the things that reminds me I need to buy and things like that. For wine, it's a little different. I would usually, if I'm looking for something specific, I go to Wine Searcher and find the best price that's somewhat available. Or I have a few retailers that I think have decent selections that I go to. So for non-wine, I would definitely be, like if I'm on Amazon, I'm looking at the reviews, but over a certain enough, they're not gamed by farms somewhere that have fake uh, reviews. And then also things I've previous experience with. I think that one still holds true for both wine as well. It's like, if I'm in a hurry to buy something, if I'll do that on a wine list, if I, it's like, hey, I know this producer, that they're a good producer. Okay, I can trust that. I'll make those purchases that way based on like, hey, I'm familiar with that brand. I've had them before and something like that, or someone told me about that brand. But those are the two main data points I would use familiarity and then potentially reviews of those things. Totally. So you've hit on all elements. And I would also venture to say that what displays first to you also tends to matter in like the top 10. Also, I would venture to say that what we call the metadata, which is what is being recommended against the selection that you have displayed. And if you recognize any of those brands, that are recommended against the wine that you're looking at. Um, it was really interesting when you use the analogous of kind of shelf talkers and cap displays in the digital world and cap display is being in the above the fold carousel, 
right? So what we call above the fold. And if we're in a browser right now, it's like the top above where your browser, the crease is. So you don't have to scroll down. It's just all in your visual display. You don't have to move your eyes, just right in front of you. And then it carousels across so that the only thing you have to click is to the side, but you don't scroll down. And you would be amazed at how many people make their purchasing decisions just on that carousel. It's like when you're looking at stuff all day, it's just like the people who make it easy for you are the ones that are going to win. So if we were to imagine there's a new wine brand and you had to give a recommendation so they want to get into the grocery space and online being a big part of that, what are some recommendations you would give to a new wine brand so that they would be successful in the years to come in the online grocery space? I mean, first they need to have a website. Like, I'm not kidding. (laughs) They just, to be great in what I call e-grocery, you have to understand the discipline of digital. And the discipline of digital is best learned by having your own e-commerce website. It truly is the best way to understand what a customer experiences in engaging with your brand. And so I would say, number one, get a Shopify website, super cheap. It's like 20 bucks a month and get your product online, like in that way where you're doing the engaging with the customer. You're also responsible for the fulfillment. So you can kind of understand the whole process. And then second, once you've kind of cut your teeth on that, which it won't take long, just like a three-month effort. Once you kind of understand what it takes to have good digital presence and hygiene, then I would go to a grocery store where your product is being sold and make sure that you're working in partnership or in tandem with your distributor, letting the retailer know that you have the information available digitally about your product. It is an added value. It is truly an added value. So unknown wineries, unknown brands, if you can have a crystal clear digital presence about your brand, it is such an easy win for you to sell to a retailer that you are a serious product and also so great for the customer because then they can access information very easily on you. Those are all good tips. So with the online grocery space for wine, what do you think are the big trends that will happen in the next two to three years? I think virtual tastings are not going away. I know that everyone's like, oh, it's COVID's over. Like everyone's going to come to our winery. Like, no, there will always be that. It will always be an important part of the universe of the wine experience. But part of what is going to enable wine to compete is bringing the winery to the customer. And whether it's done through digital tastings, you know, virtual tastings, or locally in the store or a customer's home, whatever it might be, I think that we are going to see like continued, continued connection between the winemaker, winery, supplier, and the customer enabled digitally it's going to be critically important. The second is we're going to continue to see, I hope to see more information around wellness with wine. And I think that digital is going to play a really big role in sharing that communication and putting it out there. I also think that one very bizarro trend, maybe, I know we've seen a little bit 
of it in the industry with kind of small groups within the trade. But I think women are going to become a really play a very important role in the wine industry in terms of connecting with customers through digital. The majority of people who are buying wine in national grocery stores are women. And they are very much looking to connect with people who are like them and a product that they may not be as comfortable with. So I think women are going to become very, very important in the total like digital experience and communication around wine. Awesome. Those are some great trends to watch out for. We would like to wrap up each episode on a personal note. And so we are curious, and what was the most memorable wine you've drank in the last year? And who did you drink it with? The wine that I'm like currently obsessed with, other than Cameron Hughes Wines and all of our amazing lot wines, is Cherry Pie. And Cherry Pie, it's specifically a Pinot Noir and comes from Sonoma Coast. It is, full disclosure, made by Vintage Wine Estates. And I'll tell you who I've shared it with, like many, many people, because I literally take it wherever I go. What I love about this wine is that it brings the best of the new world, California style, and the old world Burgundian acidity to rich California Pinot. I love Pinot Noir, but it's always like as a Burgundian wine, it's always been too light for me. And as a California Appellated wine, regardless of the appellation, just too rich. And this wine is just, it's so literally the perfect wine. And I've had it with, I can't believe I'm saying this, but my daughter who's turning 18 and has followed me in the wine industry for a long time, her first wine with me, maybe she had some before me and I didn't even know it, but she had this Pinot with me and she could smell everything. And it was like an absolutely amazing experience, I have to say, for me. Awesome. Well, thank you uh, for sharing that experience. And uh, definitely, uh, we'll make sure we link up uh, Vintage Wine Estate so people can check out all of the brands that are in the portfolio. So good talking to you guys. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time. Cheers.